else. So Song of Solomon, we'll, we will first read chapter 5. Um, now, I don't know if we'll get through everything that I have, um, but um, the main thing I want us to see is right, right at the beginning. So um, that's fine. I, uh, so uh, our reading this week, you're looking at Job, uh, you're in Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That's a lot for, for, one, for one week. Uh, and so uh, w- the Song of Solomon of all those is the most neglected. And also, I, I think one that man, we, we would just do so well to, to read it. A um, couple of things, way an introduction. Uh, the poem in chapter 1, verse 1, suggests it's Solomon's. Um, and some agree with that, some don't. We do know that Solomon had composed poems. So we, we looked at this a few weeks ago when we were in First and Kings. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. This could be one of those, right? Um, and uh, if they had Spotify back then, maybe we'd know what those other 1,004 of them. Um, but others do reject uh, the notion that Solomon wrote this. For one, Solomon was not the ideal husband described here. I mean, I think that's kind of obvious. I mean, th- th- think about it, ladies, okay? <laughs> you, do you really want to read the love song in the Bible from a guy you don't know which one of his wives he's talking about, right? I mean, it kind of ruins it. Let's, let's, let's be honest. So, um, uh, sure, I'll put that verse up there, but you already know what it is, 700 wives. Um, it's also that chapter 1, verse 1 does not necessarily mean it was written by Solomon. It could mean it was written in the spirit of Solomon, it's wisdom literature, uh, or it reflects a Solomon's view of love, uh, his uh, love poetry, or something like that. Uh, so it could be done in the spirit of Solomon, if, if, if you will. Um, but regardless, uh, most agree that whoever the author is, either Solomon had a role in it, directly and indirectly, uh, or from a very early period, it was associated with Solomon. He is, by the way, mentioned throughout the book. Uh, he is, you could say, the main character. Uh, he is the, 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 the groom. Um, so if you want his name... Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 7, 9, 11, chapter 8, verse 11, 12. So, uh, he's, he's all over the place. The question, however, of Song of Solomon is, how do you interpret the book? Um, I will never forget. Um, I taught in the Song of Solomon a few times when I was a Goshen. I was young and dumb back then. And uh, I was trying to share with everyone that this is a love poem. And I, I read it through the lens of husband and wife. And then one of our members, godly sweet lady, she died shortly after we left, went to her funeral, and just uh, she, she was our main babysitter down there. Our payment was uh, a dozen eggs. We had chickens. If we got her a dozen eggs, she would she'd babysit the kids. And so every time, we, 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 had, we had a carton ready. That, that's Miss Janie's. Uh, we're going to go out on a date, right? And our dates were uh, we fixed sandwiches and watched a movie at the parsonage, and we were just dirt poor. So, um, but uh, uh, she's she a little preacher. Everything you're saying, that's, that's not what my Bible says. Well, I don't understand. Well, she had a little study Bible. I think it was the Dake study Bible, for those who may have grown up with the Dake. I could be wrong on, on, on that detail. But it gave the interpretive lens of Christ in the church. Uh, and so I had to very kindly say, I understand that reading. That's just not where I'm taking us. And, and I, I would still utter that. So, so um, um, that, that is an allegorical reading of it, And so in the Old Testament, it would be God's love for Israel. And a New Testament reading, it would be Christ and his church. And these are uh, pretty common. Um, so for a Jewish perspective, they would say the first 
two and a half chapters, uh, almost the first three chapters, describe the Exodus, Sinai, and the conquest, right? I, I, I'll show you sort of how it's broken down. You may be able to see some of this. The idea of alienation and Exodus. Um, they see chapter uh, 3, verse 7 to 5, 1 as the Solomon Temple, and they have reasons for this. Um, chapter 5, look at, look at chapter 5, verse 2. Maybe we'll read some of this and see if you can see how you can, uh, through the use of allegory, turn this into Israel's sin and exile. Okay, chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Uh, my beloved put his hand to the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. I opened to my beloved. My beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. Those watchmen on the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, a most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousands. His head is the finest goat. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, besides streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, uh, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? So what you can interpret this is, is Israel's sin, right? Here, here, here the groom, God the Father, if you will, is, is at the door. And, and I love the, the, the imagery. You can really see he's, he's reaching out his hand to the knob. He's, he's wanting to turn and he finds it's locked, right? And here she is on the inside, separated from her, her beloved. And she refuses to let him come in. And then what happens is that that creates longing. He goes off and that creates longing. She, she, she pursues him and what she finds is exile. She's abused. So through an allegorical reading, which is not my preferred reading, um, the, the Mishnah and the Jews would, would find this. Uh, they would see chapters 6 and 7 as the return, rebuilding of the temple. Uh, and then through the end, all the way to chapter 8, the expectation of Messiah and the Roman Empire, stuff, stuff like that. So um, there, there are those. Uh, Christians have come to Song of Solomon. They've suggested uh, some of the imagery and what they mean. For example, the kisses described in chapter 1, verse 2 equals the words of God. Uh, the dark skin of the girl in chapter 1, verse 5, we'll, we'll look at that some, represents sin. Um, her two lips in chapter 4, verse 11, represents the law and the gospel. Uh, the army with banners uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, represents the church as the enemy of Satan. Now, here's the problem with allegory is you can make those claims, but you can't defend them based off of a natural reading of the text. So I do think there's room for allegory in the Bible, you have to be very, very careful with it. Very careful with it. Paul does it a little bit in the New Testament, very little. Um, 
but I, I don't think it, it, it just reads naturally Song of Solomon this way. But it, it's, it's common the way people approach it. Um, so if the allegory reading doesn't work, what, what does work? My preferred approach is a literal reading of Song of Solomon. And so that makes it a drama celebrating the love between a man and a woman. And, and some debate whether it's chronological or not. If you take a chronological approach, what you have is pre-marriage, the wedding, and the post-wedding, and all that that, that entails. Uh, it's not that easy. The dream sequence, I think it's between chapter 3 and chapter 5, complicates things. I believe what we just read, um, let me see, that may be part of the dream sequence. Um, that's going to bother me now. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it references the, the dream. Anyways, so, um, and then, so when you throw that into it, so is it a poem within a poem? Is it a narrative within a narrative? So it, it can get pretty convoluted. Some see it as like three poems. I'll, I'll, I'll show you why three works best. Three poems sort of put together to, to form a, a unified whole. Um, so, so but, but regardless, I, I, I do think... Um, I do take a literal reading to it. Um, now, the reason people reject the literal reading should be obvious. There are parts of Song of Solomon that are difficult to read in church. Is that, is that a good enough way to put that? I made jokes about middle school boys at youth camp discovering Song of Solomon, right? Um, and there's a reason why that is. Like we, we are uncomfortable with this in a conservative Baptist setting. Um, and, and, and that's... Part of that is, is, is unfortunate. Uh, there's a pastor friend of mine who is more conservative than I am, right, in many ways, not just theologically, but many ways. Um, he brags. He says, I have taught verse by verse through Song of Solomon in every church I've been to. In fact, the last time I did it, my poor wife came up to me. We're about three weeks done, you know, before done the series. She says, honey, do you think this could be the last time I have to sit through you talking about Song of Solomon? Because it's so uncomfortable, Right? She says, to you, you're just preaching the Bible. To me, it's my husband preaching that part of the Bible, right? <laughs> and I, I think there, I can see that, right? Um, we've talked a lot about Song of Solomon my seven years here. We've avoided a few passages um, uh, in, in general, uh, uh, at least in, in reading them and giving any details to them. And, and I, I understand that. Well, so why should then Christians read Song of Solomon? Um, I think for one, we, we live in a culture that is obsessed with uh, and, and confused about love, intimacy, marriage, and God's design for them all. And you think about it, what, what, what we've done is, is we've, we've taken a step back, uh, whereas the Bible has actually encouraged us to take a step forward. Uh, and, and I, I want to really spend most of our time showing the, the beauty of what is described here other than just what is described, like how, how the biblical worldview comes upon this. Um, and so what we do is we portray intimacy, especially towards young people, as something that is gross. And then we go into the culture where intimacy and all that surrounds that is described as a God. And, and so here, here you have your natural desires as being pulled. And, and what will almost always win is turning intimacy uh, into a God. It turns into a type of lust. And um, Song of Solomon it helps us in, in that regard. Um, the couple portrayed here are not perfect. In fact, what we just read in chapter 5 is an example of alienation. Here you have this couple, and, and they're separated. 
There's a literal wall, a door between them, and that is never fixed. She goes to find him, and he is, he's ran away, right? He, he feels uh, abandoned. And then when she pursues him, now she feels abandoned, right? Uh, it's not a perfect couple by any stretch of the imagination. But when you read the, the, the poem, you realize it's not about the beauty of the couple. It's the beauty of God's gift to the couple. That's the real riches of, of, of this. So how should we read it in terms of like practically? You know, what, what sort of setting should we read it? The first is um, I think married couples should read this book. Obviously, I think it's an obvious point. Uh, when my wife and I went, went on our honeymoon, uh, I read Song of Solomon backwards. I know that sounds weird, and it was an accident. Uh, it wasn't something we planned. We read Song of Solomon at our wedding. I will read it, uh, Lord willing, uh, before we leave. Uh, what we read, I read it at virtually every wedding I do. It's in chapter 8. And then, I, and then I, it hit me. I've never really read Song of Solomon, just sort of as a devotion, a devotional piece, you know. Uh, and so I read that chapter we had read from our, honeymoon, our, our wedding. I thought, what, what's the chapter before that say? And I read through it. What's that chapter before it say? That's how did, we just ended up reading through the whole thing backwards. And it was in the setting of, of, of our honeymoon. And, and uh, I've always believed that spiritual intimacy is what takes true marital intimacy uh, to a whole new height. So uh, that, I think that's an obvious point. The second one is that Christians should learn to propose rather than to just oppose. What we have here is what it is that we long for in life. The beauty and unity of love um, and with all the messiness. Um, and so instead of us saying, don't do this, don't do that, what we're actually offering is here, here's a better picture. Here's something better that we want to offer you. Uh, here's a model for you. And, and the Bible encourages this. Um, in fact, if you're still in chapter five, go up to verse one. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. Remember this language we're looking at. I gathered my myrrh and my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine, my wine with my milk. Now, your Bible, do you have headings? So verse one starts with he, or maybe the groom, or something like that. And then these last two lines, does it say others, or something like that? Here it is. Eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. Here's the question. Who, who's talking there? In Song of Solomon, there are a number of characters. There's always the groom and the bride, right? Um, there's also the bride's friends. I think it's hilarious that he has to win her friends over. She does not have to win his friends over. I think that's very practical, very practical, right? I mean, ladies, you know, right? You, you, you're dating your, your husband and you invite, you know, introduce him to, to, to your gal friends, right? That may be more difficult in some circumstance than in, in introducing him to your father, right? I mean, you got to win them, right? You got to win them over. And that happens in Song of Solomon. Whoever this is, it's unlikely it's the friends or the groom and bride. Who is it? A lot of scholars suggest this is God himself speaking. In the poem, eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. If so, it's, it's as far as I know, the only time God tells us to be truly drunk and it is in the context of marital uh, love. Now, we can't say that with certainty. I think the ambiguity is on purpose, but it's fascinating. So, so here we, we propose. So God does want you to, to, to be intoxicated with love. And it's truly beautiful. But, but we're intoxicated with lust, and it's not the same thing. All right, the third thing I want to spend some time on. Uh, we need to appreciate the theology of the book. I think I can convince you that this is a great book and not one that we should be afraid of. Because when you read it within the storyline of the Bible, you see it, it is a fantastic book. 
it's not easy to read because of the poetry and the metaphors and the imagery and, and the, 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 the erotic literature of it. But, but the theology of the book's beautiful. Um, in fact, go back there to verse 1. Where, 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 where are the bride and groom going? They're going to a garden. Much of the book takes place in a garden. And so what you get in a garden imagery is a man and a woman who are naked and not ashamed. And they struggle with alienation and reconciliation. At times they are two, which chapter five details. At times they are one. Now, can you think where in the Bible those themes pop up? So the author here, I think, is, is looking at the garden and, and he's, he's putting the garden here in Jerusalem saying that that hope can be realized here imperfectly because we're imperfect people. But the, the picture here is to recover what's been lost uh, from the fall. So, so let me see if I can show this to you. Garden imagery, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. A locked garden is my sister, my bride. A locked spring, a sealed fountain. And what's the language there? Garden and water source. Remember our study of Genesis is that when you see a oasis, a spring, a water in the wilderness, that reminds us of the Garden of Eden. So you have a garden in the midst of all this wilderness. And so that chapter 4, verse 12 is loaded with this imagery. Garden, spring, fountain. A few verses where you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water flowing streams from Lebanon. So it's, it's a river, a river running through the garden. But but what is the garden? It's, it's, it's the object of our affection now. You're, you're, you're God's garden to me, God's gift. God has placed me into this garden. It's beautiful imagery. Uh, later, awake north wind, come wind of the south, make my garden breathe out of fragrance. Notice, so, so now it's, it's not just that the garden is over there. Now, now there's an invitation to the garden. Right. May its balsam oils flow. May my beloved come into his garden. So, so, so notice, it, it, again, it is, it is, that is my garden that God has blessed me with. But then it's also the opposite, to invite one into the garden. It, it, it's both and. Oh, by the way, look what's in the garden. And the, and the encouragement is to eat the delicious fruits. The Garden of Eden is God saying, eat the delicious fruits. Except this, you're not ready for it yet. And in, in Song of Solomon, the opening chapters, there's this language of don't awaken love before, before it's, it's, it's too early. Instead, when you are ready, when it is time, enjoy the fruits of love. That is what it is you get in the garden. God isn't saying, here is a tree, thou shalt never eat of it. But when it is time, you'll be ready for this. You'd be ready for the wisdom and discernment that comes from this tree. You're not ready for it. I give you life, that fruit. But then there's this other fruit you're not ready for it yet. And Song of Solomon goes over that. Uh, you know, daughters of, of, of Israel don't awaken love yet. You're not ready for that fruit yet. But here it is. It is it, it, it get drunk with the delicious fruit, if you will. Um, in chapter 5, we, 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 I, I've already referenced this. There's the garden. We looked at it. Um, you can go down to chapter 6, verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden. There's that language again. To the beds of uh, balsam to pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. So this picks up language from Genesis, doesn't it? Abraham pasturing his flocks. 
and, and he builds an altar and there becomes a, a garden because of the trees you get throughout Genesis. We, we, we've looked at that. Um, uh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions, are listening for your voice. Now, where can you find to listen to one's voice in the garden? Come on, guys. I mean, this is, it's, it, it's, it's like the Bible wants us to go back there. Why? Because you and I want to go back there. And but we don't want to go back there alone because we don't belong in Eden alone. God has created man and woman. So what Solomon presents is man and woman in a broken world, in this wilderness as exiles, we create in marriage a new garden. Now, please tell me that that is a more beautiful image of marriage and love than anything you ever heard growing up in youth group. Because it was all about opposing things rather than proposing things. Right? Here's God's gift. And, and together, he creates you a garden where the two become one and the one become many. And that's, that's what you're getting in, in Song of Solomon. Um, I've, I've mentioned fruit imagery. Here's some more. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood. Uh, 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 I well, I don't go there. Um, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. The idea of sitting in the shade is a, is a messianic imagery of the future kingdom. Zechariah 3 would be a good example of that. Um, his fruit was sweet to my taste. Right? It's delightful. Um, uh, chapter 4, awake or north wind. Uh, we, we already saw this. Let him come uh, and eat his pleasant fruit. Uh, chapter 8, verse 12, my vineyard. Uh, by the way, vineyard is important because remember when Noah gets off the ark, he builds a garden. But this is a garden with vineyards in it. So now the, the garden imagery, it was a generic term. Now it's specifically a vineyard. Well, which makes sense because the fruit is one about which you should uh, become intoxicated with. But this intoxication is good for your soul. Uh, it, it, it's good for you. So as Noah is naked and ashamed because of the vineyard, here you're naked and unashamed because of the vineyard. So this vineyard is mine. It's before me. Um, uh, and there's, there's the fruit uh, again. Uh, one, one last example of this, uh, the desire for one's husband. And we could look at other connections between Genesis and, and Song of Solomon. The desire for one's husband. This is interesting. Um, uh, the word, uh, I think it's this word, delight. Um, I think the word is desire there. It's the same word used in Genesis 3. Uh, to describe the desire for the forbidden fruit um, and the desire that she would have for her husband. So you remember in Genesis 3, I think it starts in verse 16, it says, um, uh, your desire will be for your husband that he will rule over you. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means. We talked about it years ago, so uh, you can go back and find that if, if, if you want to see how much trouble I got myself into. But here, notice her desire for her husband has been sanctified. It's not a desire to rule over. It's a desire to rule with, to enjoy. So, so again, you have this picture of marriage. Is, it is the wilderness is outside of the home. But in here, you have man and woman ruling and reigning together in unison to the glory of God. And God is pleased in that imagery. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. This, this is, this is, this is what, what, what we want. And we could add that throughout the book, God is identified, so the Lord will speak, 
uh, and, and the Lord will be mentioned. So you have not just uh, man and woman as one flesh, but God is reconciled with them. Um, so so I, I think if you read it theologically, it's a beautiful book, really a beautiful book. Uh, Jim Hamilton, uh, Dr. Hamilton is a professor at Southern. His biblical theology, uh, he wrote, Adam and Eve were naked with no shame, uh, but after they sinned, their alienation, remember that word from one another, led to their covering themselves and evading blame. The Song of Solomon shows the Solomon king, who is seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of Judah, seed of David, overcoming the alienation of the fall and renewing the intimacy of Eden. That is important, right? So even if Solomon didn't write it, the imagery of the seed of the woman, right, begins with Eden. We, we've traced that all the way through. Well, David is the messianic hope. So it's his son who's the seed of the promised one, right? And so that may be why Solomon is so prominent in this, is to pick up that imagery. One of the main features of the song is the persistence of alienation between the man and the woman. This alienation is a result of the judgment announced in Genesis 3.16. The intimacy lost at the fall, judgment, is renewed to salvation, and the beauty of God's intention is celebrated glory. The king and his beloved are separated by the woman's insecurity by her appearance, and the man overcomes this with his complimentary words. In response, the beloved exults in the glory of the relationship, which is compounded by the king's celebratory delight and more of her own. And that's just all, that's all in chapter one. <laughs> uh, I love chapter one. That's, that's why you're assigned it. Uh, I think chapter one, two is so practical. Then the couple is separated by a wall, chapter two, verse nine, by distance in chapter three, and by her willingness, unwillingness, chapter five, which, which we read. In each case, the separation are overcome and is usually at the king's initiative, except in chapter three. Um, the king bounds over the hills to woo his beloved into the springtime of love. He comes up from the wilderness arrayed in wedding splendor. He puts myrrh on the, on the lock. His efforts toward the renewal of the intimacy lost at the fall culminate in the broad statement of chapter 7. I am my beloved and his desire is for me. There's that word again. Remember, it was your desire will be for your husband to rule over him. Now, who desires who? He desires her, which is really what, what ladies you want to begin with, right? It's the beauty of it. It's an inversion of the fall. Yahweh cursed the woman with desire for her husband, uh, which meant that she would inappropriately seek to take initiative in a relationship. The song sings the writing of reverse desire. The one who desires is the man. It is he who takes proper initiative in the relationship. Overcoming the judgment of the curse on gender relations, the man and the woman find reconciliation and intimacy. Through the cursed land, they travel to gardens, vineyards, and places of springtime fertility, renewing the intimacy of Eden. The joy of verdant fields, flocks, and fellow heirs in the grace of life rebounds in the song to the glory of God. The seed of the woman, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, has overcome the curse and taken his loving wife to a lush garden. Here is an inspiring beauty. Through the judgment comes salvation to the praise of the good creator. It's, just, it's beautiful to see. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Now, it is in this context that I don't think you should read Song of Solomon allegorically. You should read it theologically. So it's not about uh, Israel forsaking God. It's, it's, it's about humanity having created a wilderness. God continues to pursue, and he continues to give us the very first thing he gave us to begin with. That's Love, marriage, intimacy, man, woman, naked and not ashamed. And so when you read it theologically, you can really see the beauty uh, of everything that, that is going on here. Well, 
For sake of time, uh, I can summarize the book pretty easily, which is why we probably won't get to the whole thing. Uh, there are three parts of the book. So there's three cycles, and they all follow the same pattern. The first is alienation. Okay, how about we look at one? Uh, the first cycle, chapter one. This is part of your reading. Chapter one, starting in verse two. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Right? Well, that's, yeah, right? That's, so we already know this is going to be a love poem. So we are set up right from the beginning. Something good's about to happen. They're going to fall in love, right? Um, and, and Disney's going to get all the credit for it. And they're going to ruin it years later to stay woke, right? We know how that's going to go. Your love is better than wine. So already, so now, now that you're trained theologically, you see wine, you're thinking of the garden. You're thinking of vineyards. You're thinking of a lush garden. Remember, gardens at this time were the realms of the rich. Right? They created gardens. Remember, uh, uh, David is in his garden when he sees Bathsheba, and it is up high, much as Eden was, was up high. Anyways, uh, your anointing oil are fragrant. Your name is oil pour, pour, poured out. Uh, therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Here's the others. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will exult your love more than wine. Rightly do, do they love you. All right, there's her friends. Notice what she says starting in verse 5. So it starts out with, uh, it's, it's like, I don't know which princess she starts out singing because she's so happy. I don't know, one of those old ones, right? She's just, I guess they all do that, right? They're just happy. They're just happy, especially when they see the boy. They're just happy. Even the birds sing. It always seems odd, like the birds are singing, helping her get dressed in the morning. That's Cinderella that does that. Some others, I don't know. Ask my daughter, she'll tell you. Um, but notice her complaint. So she goes from this high, I want to kiss him with the kisses of my mouth, right? But notice now she says, I am dark. I'm, I am very dark but lovely, O daughter of Jerusalem, like the kins of Cater, the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. You understand what she's saying about vineyards now, doesn't he? Now notice what you have here is you have choice vineyards and you have the less choice vineyards. And what is she saying about her vineyard? She's saying that mine is dark and unlovely. Mine is dark and ugly. Now we're the opposite here, here, here in America. In agriculture society, light skin is a sign of wealth and beauty. In a society where we all sit at our computers all day, dark skin is a sign of beauty. It's much, I've used this example a thousand times before. In Africa, uh, the more you weigh, the more beautiful you're considered because everyone's starving to death. In America, the skinnier you are, the more beautiful you are because we're all overweight. Beauty is always defined as that which is unattainable. You need to remember that, right? And so she is complaining, here I am in this agricultural society, and like Cinderella here, Everyone else is able to go inside, but I'm having to, to take care of their vineyards. Literally, I cannot take care of my metaphorical vineyard. She is struggling with her body image, self-confidence. So she, she said, there's this guy who keeps texting me, but I keep telling myself he'll never want me. He's, he's too good for me. I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't fit the standard enough. Why could anyone ever love someone like me? Doesn't this sound familiar, right? This is, this is every teenage girl, frankly. There's a lot of adult women, frankly. Even married adult women, this, this, this describes them. 
And um, verse 7, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pastor your flock, where you've made it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? You see there, like, you shouldn't want to have anything to do with me. You, you see the alienation here in this text. So there's the hint that there's some relationship there. But she is now wanting to pull away from that because of, of her own internal struggles. All right, so, so that's alienation. Um, in chapter 3, uh, her nightmare becomes a reality that she can't find her beloved. It's the dream sequence. And in chapter 5, we read that she rejects him at night. Right? Um, and we, we read that. So that's, those are the three stages of alienation. Okay? Well, alienation is followed by reconciliation. Now, when we get to the end of this, you all can tell me if you can think of a good application. Alienation, and then what follows it three times is reconciliation. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 8 to, 20, to chapter 2. Let's read some of this, right, since we're in chapter 1. If you do not know, so this is the groom speaking here, right? He's like, all right, I'm going to come through here. I've told you this a thousand times, honey. I'm getting tired of repeating myself. So I'm going to write it in terms of poetry. Maybe you'll listen to me then, right? If you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women. Ah, you like where this is going, don't you? Now, what is she really wanting from him? Now, remember, the difference between men and women, men are visual. Women are verbal. Who does most of the talking in the Song of Solomon? It ain't he. Right? <laughs> she does most of the talking, okay? Um, uh, you know, a guy can, uh, I, I, I heard this a joke recently by Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, he, he made the, he set it up, he's saying, Women ask questions they know men have no interest in answering because they cannot answer. He says, here's an example. Hey, honey, I got a text from Carl. Uh, he says, we need to pray for, for, for Jim. He was in a car wreck. She responds with, well, where did he wreck? Well, I don't know. I just got a text from Jim, and we need to pray for Carl. I don't know the names. Uh, he was in a car wreck. Well, was he hurt badly? I don't know. I got a text from Jim saying we need to pray for Carl. He's in a, he's in a car wreck. Well, were, were Gail and the kids with him? I don't know. I got a text from Carl saying we need to pray for Jim, right? He does this for like five minutes, right? He's like, she knows I don't know the answer to these questions. All the information is in these 20 words, right? right? But, but 20 words aren't enough, okay? So, so, but you'll notice when he speaks, he is verbally generous to his wife. He, he doesn't belittle her. He doesn't talk over her. He doesn't demean her. He meets her right where she is. If you don't know, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. That's a compliment. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. See there, he, he bought her jewelry, right? And then here come her friends. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. You, you see the, how important those friends are. Guys aren't going to do this. Uh, dude, I'm really struggling. You'll be fine. <laughs> right? You know, like, but, but, but the friends are coming over here. They're going to support her. Right? And you can keep, keep reading in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Right? You, you, can, you can keep reading. You, you see what's going on here is you have alienation, which then is led by reconciliation but notice who is initiating the reconciliation it's not her desire will be for her husband in the genesis 3:16 sense is that his desire will be for her in a reversal of the fall so we're going back to the garden where he will lead and he will love his his wife 
Um, in uh, uh, chapter 3 um, is the wedding. There you go, ladies. Chapter 3, verse 5, 11. Um, he's the sitter of the wedding. Of course, if you're king, I guess that makes sense. Um, and then in chapter 6, after she rejects him, uh, the two are reunited in the garden. So, um, so you have alienation, which then gets led to reconciliation. And here's the third one is celebration. Okay, alienation, reconciliation, celebration. Um, now, before we look at it, I think this is about as obvious of an application any preacher can make from a book of the Bible. We all get alienation. All of us struggle with the reconciliation. No wonder we lack so much celebration. So what, what, what is alienation? It's when one become two. What's reconciliation? When two become one. What's celebration? When the one become many. Right? It's almost like I've read that somewhere and that we've been commanded to practice it. You know, when Jesus says, you, you bring your gift to the altar and you realize that you have something against your brother, leave your gift. Go reconcile. Your worship's been tainted. What if our churches practice that? Boy, that, that would be too biblical. We better not do that. Well, let's look at celebration, chapter 2, uh, chapter two verse, verse 18. Uh, wait, there is no chapter 2, verse 18. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> and that's what my notes say. Ah, verse 8, yeah, there we go. Um, I should wear glasses. Verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved's like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the light latest. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one. Notice there, she... she she hears him, right? And that, that's, that's, that's what's important. It's the verbal affirmation she's getting. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear in the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is, in, is, is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. By the way, notice there in verse 13, where do we first meet a fig tree? It is what Adam and Eve used to cover up their shame. Now it is not the source to cover up shame is the source of celebration. Which is what the victory is for. It is the eat, not the cover. You see what happens when you read it theologically? It's beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, verse 14, in the uh, crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in the blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He gazes among the lilies till the day breeze and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on Clef Mountain. You, know, you see, the, uh, um, it, it begins the way it ends, right? The young stags and gazelle. What are they going to do? They're going to go take a trip, celebrate. All right? Vacation. Alienation, reconciliation. So, so what you have there is, is she, she is struggling with this relationship. He responds by meeting the immediate need, and then they go and celebrate that they are united again. Now, you'll notice there is no description of intimacy described here. That is, that is one of the things that's wrong about Song of Songs. We assume it is so central that it's every page. It's not. You have none of that so far. What you have is the affirmation of a husband who desires his wife. It's beautiful, beautiful. And it uses garden imagery 
because they're surrounded by a wilderness that keeps wanting to seek in. In fact, you'll notice that reference of verse 15 to catch the foxes for us, the foxes that ruin the vineyard. Now, there's some debate of what these represent, but some agree and, and, and suggest that the foxes represent anything that may harm the relationship. And we've already been given one example, and that is from her and her body image as a fox. Right? She, she speaks of a vineyard. Right? Didn't she start out by saying... Um, uh, oh, I won't find it now. But, but they're, they're coming into the vineyard. Well, foxes ruin vineyards. There's a lot of things that will ruin the vineyard of, of marriage, right? Whole, whole host of things, right? Um, and so she's saying, don't, deal with the foxes. We don't want to ruin this. This is where we belong in celebration as husband and wife. And that's what was robbed out of the garden. Well, uh, the second cycle, uh, uh, she has a nightmare in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. It's uh, likely a dream uh, on my bed at night, chapter 3, verse 1 says. So uh, she, she is seeking her love. Um, she wakes up in her dream. She wakes up and her beloved is gone. Um, uh, the wedding day is the reconciliation, chapter 3. Verse 5 to 11, um, the debate is, is this reality, is it part of the dream? Again, the chronology gets difficult. Are they married in chapter 1? I don't know. If you read it chronologically, they're not married in chapter 1. That's why there's no intimacy. But the, the wedding night described in chapter 4 makes sense if the wedding is in chapter 3. But it could be all of chapter 3 going into chapter 5 is a dream sequence. I, I, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of smart people. Uh, there. Um, uh, I think we already look at this. Chapter 4, verse 16. This is, this is the wedding night. So what you get in, in these more sensual passages is um, she is visually generous, right? And he responds by being verbally generous. So they're naked and not ashamed. And so what he does is he describes his, his, his bride. And in chapter 4, I think I think he starts with a head and he stops at her waist or her chest or somewhere like that. In chapter 7, he'll start with her feet and notice her shoes. There you go, ladies. And then work his way all the way up, up, up to her head. So he, he, so he is very verbally generous towards her. So I don't want to see this chapter 4, verse 6. This is the wedding night. Awaken, O north wind. Again, we've seen this. O come, south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Uh, let my beloved come to his garden any of his choices fruits, right? It really is a climatic scene there. And that is the celebration. So you have the alienation. Uh, reconciliation is, is the wedding um, celebration. Um, same thing, third cycle. Uh, alienation in chapter five. We, we, we read that. In chapter six, they're reunited in the garden. Um, so chapter six, verse four to nine. Um, here he is describing her again. You are beautiful in Tizra, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. This, this reminds me, this is free. Um, every Valentine's Day, you can, you can uh, get digital Valentine's Day cards that take Song of Solomon and takes these descriptions. I think they're hilarious. This would be compared to uh, your Mother's Day card, Susie, you know. 
I love how you cook this and cook that, right? It'd be, it'd be like that, right? Um, so, so, you know, you could, you could put your hairs like a flock of goats that leaping down, forget, right? You know, it's, I think it's funny. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes uh, that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, not um, among them has lost his young. Now, we laugh at that because he's saying you got teeth, right? <laughs> you know, you're losing your teeth. That's, that is not common at that time, right? So, so it's his compliment. I've, I've noticed these things about you. And she wants to know that he noticed these things. Right? Amanda's going to get her hair cut soon. I'm real nervous, real nervous. She's going to get like two inches off. Don't panic, ladies. Oh, because, you know, I just can't do anything with it. And, and so now I'm under pressure that she's not going to tell me when she's going to do it. But I've got to notice that she's done it. You men know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, that's pressure right there. Because she wants to know that I noticed. Your cheeks are like halves of the pomegranate behind the veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother pure to her who bore her. The young women saw and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her. Hey, what a compliment. I don't know what half of that means, but it sounds really nice, right? And that's, that's, that's the point. That's reconciliation. They are, they are united together. Um... By the way, uh, notice verse 10 there. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army of banners? It's creation language, right? Um, this comes from a commentary in Song of Solomon. They described her beauty as th like that of the moon and sun. They do not use the usual vocabulary for those bodies. The word for moon here is related to the word white, in contrast with her self-description in chapter 1, verse 5, remember that she was dark, um, where she asked the Jerusalem girls not to chide her for her dark skin, she is also said to be like the dawn. The word used here is a play on the word in chapter 1, verse 5 for black. So it's, it's, he, he says that you're, you're white. At the same time, he, he says you're the dawn. You're dark. So see, he, he's, he's saying... What you see as uh, something that means we should not be together is the very thing I find most attractive about you, right? It's, 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 it's wonderful the, the, the way this, this is written. The word for sun is also related to the word heat. Seems to imply that she is too dazzling to behold. In a Cinderella motif, the woman who was very ordinary is now extraordinary in her beauty and breathtaking to behold. She's like the dawn. She's like the sun and the moon. You would have to go to creation itself, which takes you to the creator to describe his bride. Now, ladies, you, surely I've at least got y'all on my side with this book, right? You know, honey, why don't you ever write me love poetry like this? Well, so that's the reconciliation. Chapter seven is the celebration. And this is the, more sen the most central chapter here. We're going to skip it. You're welcome. Let me read two verses and we're done. Okay. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. This is the passage I read at every wedding I do. Um, we had it read at ours. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Right? Because that's what a king gives. He gives a seal. And you don't break that seal. But she doesn't want it on the arm. She wants it on the heart. Or they want it on the heart. Um, love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Your translation may say Sheol there. It's the transliteration Hebrew word Sheol. 
So it's parallelism, right? You have love as strong as death. Jealousy, which is now uh, compared to love, is as strong as the grave, Sheol. So it's, it's interesting here that jealousy and love are used as parallels. But I think we understand that, right? Uh, because love isn't something that is shared. Romantic love isn't something shared because it's two become one, not three become one. So, so jealousy rooted in love is as strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of who? Yahweh. Now, where in the Bible does Yahweh have a flame that creates a wall against the man and the woman who now are naked and ashamed? Could this be a reference to Genesis 3 where they are exiled from the garden and the cherubim and the flaming sword? What does Solomon, he presented us to here. Where can we find Eden in this wilderness? We are exiles right here in love. This is the flame of the Lord. It's as strong as death. It will conquer the grave. You see it, you read it theologically, it's beautiful the way it is. Many waters cannot quench love, which makes sense because it's the flame of, of the Lord. You can't quench it. Neither can floods drown it. That's an interesting reference there. Is that a reference to Noah? Who himself created a garden and turned it into a wilderness. You could flood the whole earth, couldn't conquer this love. That's this beautiful imagery. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he'd be utterly despised. So the man who has the love described here is richer than the man. He has all the wealth of the world. It does not have love. Sounds like Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? You could give your body to the Lord to be executed, yet without love. What was it for? You could, you could speak with the words of angels without love. Just a noisy symbol. What if all of our marriages looked like what is presented here? Would we have the fights we have as a culture today? So yeah, I, I get Song of Solomon is, is, a, is a tough book to get through for many reasons. But if we will get through it, it's well worth our time. Well worth our time. Well, anything you guys have, we'll call it a night. Mark has updated that. See, I'm thinking that's three minutes fast. It's not. All right.